0: you ever been bewildered like thoroughly thoroughly bewildered
1: well i maintain the peaceful serenity of the buddha mind um but in moments of uh human madness like classic example why does the drum sound like that on saint anger i too have felt bewildered
0: (laughs) i think it's an interesting feeling because I, I I, spoke about this on the um, Acid Horizons podcast. By the way, we're going to do an episode on um, Anti-Oculus, the new book, sometime soon. Yep. We uh,
1: love you guys at Acid Horizon. We love you guys.
0: Yeah. Um, and, and we talked a bit about, you know, the paradox of trying to write fiction or any art really to communicate bewilderment, right? Because... By definition, something that is bewildering is something that is unintelligible. If you can describe it, then you can give it a border and you can describe its qualities, and it's no longer bewildering. Yeah, it we, might we, be. We have on. the
1: classic problem of communicability there of like um, the internal experience of bewilderment doesn't need to preclude communicability. But when receiving something from someone else, it's a whole like Derrida thing of like and um lacan when he's in the more linguistic mode of like ultimately all we can get from another person or from another experience is communicability and so the minute you've made it communicable you've made it understandable to some degree and therefore not bewildering um, yeah. it only really works um firmly in that way in like visual art where, especially like visual art with motion, where you can suddenly start actually fucking with the senses in a certain way, but otherwise a book that's bewildering is, that's tricky.
0: Yeah, Uh, and and I think even in the visual art example, like I don't know, there's something there that kind of is missing bewilderment, because you know what's happening to you, right? Like you walk into an, unless you were completely surprised which some pieces of art do take advantage of that, but it's, it's momentary, right? It's fleeting. Yeah. Really, and, unless,
1: and... unless you... It, it, it's also a thing of... Um, a problem with archival is the minute that you've archived something... So like, if you make a text that can be read, a, you've by nature made an archive because that's what the physical text is. But with things like um, film or music or fine art or something like that, fine art also fails this test because to see the work of art, it must have been archived in some way. Um film and music, it can get a little bit different because, like, either but, single performance or destruct. But yeah, it it gets really quickly to ultimately the thing that's bewildering is experience and not the thing. But I
0: think I think that's a very interesting point in a negative example, because archiving or archives, like you described correctly, is a set that contains all sets. Right? Because the minute you order something, you've archived it in a certain way. Like mm-hmm. the act of arranging something is the act of making it memorable, which is what an archive does. Yeah, M- memorable in the sense of not not a sense of like the common, the colloquial sense of memorable, of something that um, is is interesting, but in the sense of something that can be remembered, can be recalled. But bewilderment is an empty set. Yep. That. Cannot it also doesn't contain itself? It contains nothing because it it doesn't describe itself. That that's the thing. It's like it's a it's a reference without a referred, right? Because inherently the experience to which it refers is missing. Now Wittgenstein's answer to this was the boring answer, which is shut up. <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> uh, the famous quote, um, "Whereof one cannot speak, thereof one should be silent." Of course, the answer that a lot of modern and postmodern art to that is, no, this is the interesting bit, right? Because it is a human emotion, it is a human state of mind, and the tension of our inability to describe it is incredibly fascinating. So even though there is something self-defeatist about the attempt, we should try to describe it anyway. That's what art Does, right? Or good art attempts to convey something that cannot be conveyed in other means. I think the form of art that is most like that is poetry, right? Poetry, the whole purpose of poetry is to use words to communicate things which are otherwise non communicable by words, right? And therefore, a mistake that I think a lot of people who are so. Poetry also suffers from one of my most hated attributes, which is people think you need to be some sort of like wizard living on a mountain in order to understand it. And people say things like, no, I, I I, don't read poetry. I don't get poetry. Or Like that's poetry's problem. It's not your problem. I mean, it is the specific poetry you're reading problem. Not that every single poem has to be accessible, but there's something meaningless about poems that can only be read by Academics. Right? It misses the point. And, and many times this is a problem in the reader, not in the writer, because there's this cultural aura, which I despise, around poetry. But the reason the aura is there is because poetry tries to communicate things which are difficult, subtle, weird, um, and otherwise incommunicable. But, but that's the point. You're not supposed to get a poem if you get a poem, then it's not a very good poem. You're supposed to feel a poem. It's it's right?
1: a thing that I wind up mentioning a lot when I talk about like um, problems of literacy and problems of literacy tutelage, where it's like reading the the lay act of like, I'm going to grab a random piece of paper off my desk. Did you know that the cost for dental procedures can vary based on, you know, I just grabbed a bill, of course, because I'm American so we have bills everywhere <laughs> um, for everything. Um, but the, the that act of like stringing the words together that's that's not literacy that's reading and we all need that but we do a quite bad job of teaching literacy which is like why did these words get put to the page what is what are they saying but also what is the intent of saying these words and not any other words what image do they provoke does that image feel like it was intentionally provoked or does it feel sort of like a um, Uh, an operation that is occurring almost ergotically within the text like all these questions which for the person who studies literature are way more fascinating and not only that but way more central to literally every text like from advertisements to political speech to to fiction to poetry to films like it has a lot of practical application as well that's like a lot of really good philosophical and political writing is less about what was literally written down and more, what is the mental substrate that generates this and only this and not other things. Um, and we do a very bad job of teaching that to people. Like that's, that's the part where um, I say the part where Eden and I agree is that we don't agree on like at least 99% of what we're saying <laughs> right now. Um, but this is a major facet of, uh, of of that argument that we're making where it's like the poetry hasn't failed in communicating to you per se and you haven't failed per se in not connecting with it there is instead the whole the whole interlocuting apparatus of teaching you how to read has has failed like and yeah. what's funny we know that it's failed because naive readers things like children things uh, like that naturally get this stuff you leave a kid alone they're going to generate there's a reason why poets and fiction writers and filmmakers return to the naivete of childhood in a certain way because you haven't been told wrongly what literacy is, and you see that it's actually a pretty natural, intuitive thing for a lot of people. Like they just connect with stuff they they look at a they look at a picture and they feel it. They don't think I could have drawn that, or they also don't think, "Wow, what beautiful technique is at work here?" They just feel it. Um, and people who are better at reading, ironically, learn to go back to that rather than learning to go away. So we get this weird image of. Something being hyper cerebral, when that's the exact opposite of of what's going on for people who are deeply literate. And this is regard literate in film, literate in fine art, literate in poetry. Yeah. Doesn't have to be written stuff. It's like it's about returning to that primal naive state. And it's yeah, I, I feel the same frustration where it's like when people say that kind of stuff. I'm not frustrated with them. It reminds me that the task of teaching literacy has at least thus far failed
0: yeah so i wanted to do something that i didn't get a chance to do on acid horizon which is give an example and actually read from it and that will allow us to well first of all maybe explain better what we're trying to say but also move forward to like a sister topic that i want to bring up um so i want to read from happy campus The play on words is lost if you're listening to me saying it, but you can imagine what it is, uh, by a really good poet, uh, Rodrigo Toscano. He is very good. Um, He's from California. He also has more experimental stuff, Um, but this is not one of them. Uh, By the way, this guy also has good politics. Uh, He works with the Labor Institute uh, on national projects. He's an environmental activist. Um, he's, He's a really interesting person and a very good poet, um, and I'm going to read, I'm not going to read the full poem, I'm going to read the second stanza, because I think it delivers what we're trying to say, especially the last sentence, so it goes like this, when the garden trail came to a sudden dead end, you celebrated by dreaming as a log mite, calling forth decomposition's cute sister life, a single crushed can of rose strewn thereabouts is all you two at maximum inflection point. So like if you try to understand the last sentence just cerebrally, it doesn't mean anything. Like, in what way are you a crushed can of cheap wine, and what does it mean that it's you at maximum inflection point? like if you just parse the meaning the technical meaning of the words. It doesn't make any sense, right? But that is exactly what the poem is not trying to do, right? It's trying to do the opposite. It's taking meanings that are usually intelligible to you, and it's putting them into conflict with what it is describing. It's using them in, quote-unquote, wrong ways. Like if you'll imagine the perfect grammar teacher, right? This abstract being, all it knows is grammar, it would correct the sentence, It would say, this doesn't make sense and this is not the structure you should use and what is this describing and so on. But we're not grammar creatures, right? We are creatures with emotions and perceptions and we're able to contain paradox and fuzziness. And when we contain paradox and fuzziness, when we're bewildered, not saying that this stanza itself is bewildering, but it kind of channels some of those emotions, there's something very special about it. There's something very different about it. There's something that um, excites and upsets us, which is also why we don't like it. right? And that's why people say, oh, poetry, I don't get it. I don't read poetry. That's fine. Don't get it right? Don't understand it. Sometimes I read a poem. I read a lot of poetry. I write poetry. I read a lot of literature. Sometimes I read a poem, like, I don't get it. I I don't understand. And that is fine. Like learning to be with that experience, learning to reread things, learning to just let them go, learning to not, not understand is incredibly important. It's not just incredibly important for art and literature and poetry or what have you it's also important for being alive and thinking in better ways about the world for example go on
1: oh i yeah i i was, I was going to mention that like that sense of broad humility, I think is especially important for people like us who tend to be on the more cerebral end. And I know that we've talked about this personally, you spend an amount of time in your youth being touted by people. It's like, Oh, you're smart. You know, you're, you're, you're so clever, you're whatever. And you get full of yourself in a really kind of shitty way. You look down at people, you sneer at them. You think everyone's stupid, but you, which is a really shitty way to live and makes you into a fucking prick. Um, And learning, pretty quickly that like, oh, there's a lot in the world that I don't understand, be it that it comes from a different lived experience or sometimes that the lived experience it comes from is just like, oh, you work in that field and I've never worked in that field and I don't really know the ins and outs of that and I need to actually spend time, you know, in tutelage there. Even little things like that. Um, there's also the element of how this this sense of bewilderment requires a light hand i mean we we have the phenomenon this is more of a a, a tangent but it's a brief one the phenomenon of like bad introductions to books mm-hmm. where um like famously i think it was uh jonathan Letham who wrote an intro to uh we've always lived in the castle um a, an edition of it that came out through penguin and it's like it's such a bad description of what's going on in the book which is nuts because Jonathan Lotham's a very good writer this is not knocking him but it's like that that introduction just isn't very good um and by explicating the bewildering like bleeding heart of literature poorly and making it into this understandable thing that doesn't really match what anyone loves about it you kind of it's like it's like revealing the guts of a magic trick like you you're you kind of need to not do it like that's for for us literary types that's the equivalent of what a spoiler is it's less about the plot and more about like i want you to feel the thing and i don't want to spoil the the feeling thing
0: yeah i agree with you completely i think the other side of this um, that i started alluding to when i when i talked about um you know understanding the world and so on is that And I don't want to do hyper-object discourse, right? Like, I'm kind of tired of that whole, like, perspective on things, especially considering what a lot of the um, people who um, originally generated the idea, what they're doing today, not interesting things. Um, Not not, not bad things, just not interesting things. Um, But it's still relevant, I think, or at least the, the infrastructure of how... Okay, so I'll do this another way. There's this meme where it goes, "If only you knew how things, how bad things really are." It's like a bunch of people on it. My favorite one, just because it's really funny, is the one where it's superimposed on a picture of Ratzinger, the, pre- the former Pope. <laughs> um, I don't know, just because it's absurd, right? Like the combination with that kind of character. But if only you knew how many of the things that you took for granted is like clear questions with clear answers were more complicated than they actually are, right? If only you knew like how much of the instinct that you have to explain things, which you see as obvious, if only you knew how little things in this world were obvious, right? Um, and that'll broad Applications of this, right? There are like crude applications which are easy, which is like, you know, the political stupidity of someone who has never like looked beyond their assumptions and their privilege and their perspective and assume that what they believe is coherent truth. But that's easy, right? That's, you don't need poetry for that to understand why that person is dumb, right? Um, you need poetry to understand how you as, as a person, by virtue of being human, how uncomfortable and ill-equipped you are to contain complexity, and to contain bewilderment. And by the way, before I do the bombshell segue, which will change this entire conversation, if you do want to explore that question of like human limitation and uh, perception of of reality, and and you want to do it for fiction, then I. Will once again recommend Peter Watts's *Blindside*, um, which, fucking brilliant, brilliant, well, yeah, and and, brilliant. and does a very good job at um, asking questions about those limitations. And by the way, a lot of the people that I I haven't name dropped as as doing a good job with bewilderment are pretty obvious if you listen to this podcast, right? Like, think about, and and, and we're going to do a book in, in the next segment which does it as well. Think about. Um, Vandermeer, and how like the monster or the alien in Southern Reach is never described, that he's doing it to say something. He's not doing it by mistake. The reason he doesn't describe the alien is that the whole point of the alien is that it's bewildering, right? It's inhuman, it's different, it's other. So if he described it like our favorite racist uh, author, uh, H.P. Lovecraft, (laughs) then it kind of becomes a joke. That's what I said on Acid Horizons, right? Like, oh... You cannot imagine this giant squid god. I just did. I just imagined it. What now, bitch? Like, it's not owned. unimaginable because yeah. you just described it to me, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You got owned. You got wrecked. Like, this thing that's bigger than than biggest. biggest. No, I, I can imagine it. Now, biggest is that thing. Like, it's. If you really wanted to write some about unintelligible horrors, you should have not described them like Vandermeer does in watts to a certain extent um but the bombshell segue is that we got a really good example of this um inability to make sense of something that is unintelligible with the recent and ongoing war in palestine slash israel i guess if you want to say that word um And and, and to be clear, I'm not doing a both sides, right? That's not what I'm doing here. I'm not doing, oh, it's super complicated and you can't understand it. And because it's really complicated, then you can't really say that Israel is to blame or or whatever. That's not what I'm doing. Like there are very clear, um, again, I don't want to say it's not fault or blame or um, because those things don't matter to a Marxist. That's, That's not. There's yeah. no such thing as blame when we're there's talking no such about thing as
1: political function that's not exactly. how these things work
0: We're talking about material conditions, right We're talking about a material reality, and the the entity that controls the material reality and dictates the pace and limits the possibilities or enables them is is israel that's why um that is the answer to the criticism that says that um the actions of Hamas justify. The actions of Israel in retaliation right there Israel works within the not not work sorry Israel dictates the environment in which other players like Hamas, like other Palestinian organizations like the Palestinians themselves, like the settlers on the Israel side, they all operate within the material conditions dictated by Israel, and therefore the entity which should be critiqued or the power which needs to be understood is the Israeli one. However, that doesn't say anything about the bewildering complexities of what's happening. Like, if your uh, conclusion from that is I understand (laughs) the Israel-Palestine conflict, then you're mistaken. And I'll give you an example. I'll give you a personal example. I have family, not close family but family that I grew up with who lived or live I don't know where they are now they all survived most of them in Be'ri which is one of the uh, kibbutzes kibbutzim I don't know which which plural you want to use that was attacked by Hamas like I have been to Be'ri several times I've played in the sand of Be'ri like I have a picture of me with one of the uh, family members she was my babysitter (laughs) Um, am I a settler like I was there I spent money there my family spent money there I've been paying taxes to the state of Israel for ages Um, I know people who live there none of them live there from ideology they all live there because they were born there their families live there and when you talk about their families and, like, their grandparents or whatever, things become much easier, right? Because they did go there from ideology. They chose to go there. They probably, a lot of them, had the experience of, like, driving Palestinians from that land. But then 70 years later, a child was born there, and that's it. And you don't even have to go to my family. You can go to me. I was born in Israel. I was raised in Israel. Now I've left it, but... And I resisted it for however long I was there, and I will keep resisting it until I die because I don't believe it's a just state. But, like, I'm a settler, right? So according to a lot of people um, whose opinions I've read online, I am a fair target, right? It is okay, again, not necessary, not inevitable, not... um, uh, you know, uh, what's what I'm looking for? Sorry, this is obviously very emotional for me to talk about. Um, not, you know, a, a victim of circumstance, but it's okay, it's okay to kill me. And the only way you can say something like that is if you collapse a bewildering situation into an intelligible one. Because, I don't have an answer. Like, I don't have an alternative for you. I, I can't say with the whole heart that you're wrong. Because it's not true that you're entirely wrong when you say that hypothetical person to whom I'm speaking. Um, it's not true. But the opposite is also not true. It's not true that I have done anything that justifies, you know, me being killed. Um it's not true that I am, that I have blame. It's it's not true that the, you know, children or even babies like had fault or were combatants, right? And there's no answer. The desire for an answer enables the horror, and and this is the thing. Israel wants you to answer, okay? Israel and the U.S. and every other state, they want you to come to a conclusion. Their greatest enemy is not people who resist them, right? People who have made up their mind, who understand everything, who um, have clear lines in the sand, who believe that there are simple solutions to the problem, they are not the state's enemy. They're just serving the state from the other side. The people who contain complexity, who realize that there's no easy solution, that there is no lie in the sand, those are the state's enemies. Because from there, you can have a conversation you can have empathy, you can have a joining of alliances, right? You can have a wide feder- federacy, right? Um like think about why they killed um, Fred Hampton. He could have said it's us against them, right? It's cl- clear line in the sand. Every white person is racist. Every white person is a white supremacist. Every white person in America is an enemy.
1: And we see very, very bad liberatory uh, politics parroted by people even now who should fucking know better who more or less say that same kind of thing.
0: Mm -hmm. That's easy. That's easy for the state to deal with because then there are clear lines. There are combatants from both lines and all you have to do is be stronger than the opposing combatant. You just need a bigger gun and you just shoot the person down. But when the person... Says things like, I understand that all white people are complicit and have benefited from racism in the U.S., but there are white people who are my allies because they are workers, because they are impoverished, because they suffer from the same system as I do, because they're women, because they are Irish, because they are an infinite amount of things. Then you start to get dangerous, and then they kill you
1: why martin luther king got killed
0: exactly and it's
1: not a mistake that they killed him in such an ugly brutal way either of course not this is also why we've seen black liberation movements all the time but how come i'm going to get a little conspiratorial but i think that i'm right here and i don't think i'm going to say anything shocking to anyone listening how come nearly every initial black lives matter protester was found having killed themselves in their cars with the cars set on fire
0: yeah, yeah, hundred percent. And 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 so moving it back to like the Israeli Palestinian discussion, what I'm suggesting is, of course, again, not saying that what Israel is doing now is justified, but I'm also saying that the question of what Hamas did—is it justified or not—is irrelevant. It happened. It happened because the material conditions made it happen. People choose, right? Like, Marx never said that people don't choose. And if he had, I would disagree with him because, just a brief reminder, he's not a deity, right? I'm I'm free to disagree with him. But he didn't even say that. Like, yes, people make choices. Yes, they have responsibility. But the question of what responsibility they had is irrelevant for past actions because those past actions have already happened. And assigning blame is irrelevant. You think if, like, like, Hamas did anything differently, then Israel wouldn't have done what it's doing now and you think that if um, you know, a lot of people are pointing to like specific things that Israel did in the last few weeks that to, to instigate the attack they wouldn't have attacked they, they would have attacked. They've been planning this for for a very long time. It has nothing to do with specific things that happened or didn't happen. It's about the material conditions. Now how do you change them? How do you do something? How do you actually achieve something that is not like scoring points on Twitter with like fellow leftists leftists in insane scare quotes, you do that by asking questions like, what are the voices in the places that were affected that are going against the easy narrative? Right? What are the voices that are espousing the opposite of understanding, which is oftentimes empathy? Right? Or what are the voices that are containing complexity and containing bewilderment? And I'll, and I'll give you an example. And again, I'll say something before that. I read a very interesting essay um, two days ago on Descent Magazine, very good magazine, um, by uh, Joshua Leifer. Uh, the descent. The sorry, the article is called "On Mourning in Statehood." Oh, sorry, it's a response to Joshua Leifer. My bad. By Gabriel Winnant. Joshua Leifer is this big like uh, um, uh, journalist. He wrote um, also on Dissent uh, an article called "Toward the Humane Length uh, Left." Sorry, where he makes a bunch of points. You know, um, he's Jewish. He, he he talks about like humanity from both sides and so on. A, a really stance that I don't agree with, but this article makes a really good point um, about the problem of mourning the casualties on the Israeli side, which is that the Zionist state does a lot of things, right? And a lot of things pretty good. But one of the things it's best at is turning grief and mourning into violence. If you think about it, it's the first directive of the Zionist state when it was formed, right? It turned the grief and the mourning of the Holocaust into Violence against Palestinians. Before anybody wants to come after me, my family was in the Holocaust. I can say whatever the fuck I want, okay? Um, so that's what it does, and I felt that as someone who grew up in Israel, I, I felt it. I, you have no idea how many times you get told these stories. Mm-hmm. Never again, and we have to be strong, and the IDF has to be strong, and Israel has to be strong, so it doesn't happen again. Like this is what design the state does, and this is what it's doing now with the suffering and the loss from Hamas's attack. It's taking it and it's weaponizing it. That's not to say that there's nothing to be done with it. Because again, they want to make it clear. Hamas attacked, it killed civilians, now we have to attack them back. But there are voices who are resisting that narrative. Voices from the victims, right? From the victims, saying, I was there, I nearly got killed. My entire family, in one case, was burnt alive. And I am telling Israel to stop bombing Gaza and to stop killing civilians. Right? There are a voice, that's a bewildering stance. That is a bewildering perspective. Like, when I listen to that story, I'm like, how? What do you mean? How, how is that possible? How can you have survived a week ago, not... 10 years ago, not 50 years ago, a week ago, you survived an attack and, and you're saying these things. I, I can't even imagine what it feels like to be in that situation. Collapsing that position into you are bad. You should have died. It was okay what happened to you because you're there. You were there. Then it's fine. All the opposite. You are a perfect angel you are an Israeli civilian, you will never be harmed. Anybody who takes a, a hell from your head, I shall take sevenfold from them. Those two positions are the fucking same. They're the same position. Because they collapse the complexity of the situation into something intelligible.
1: We get we get three examples off the top of my head of things that capture this. Um, that are less of the moment, and more, sadly more eternal. So as an American, we, um, I get to speak on how, uh, as white American, which is a strong equivalent to being an Israeli citizen, we have two very strong um, parallels here. They're going to be the obvious ones in case you were wondering if I was going to go somewhere crazy. I'm not. Um, we have the profound holocaust of the Triangle Trade, And chattel slavery, which was, in a lot of ways, the most brutal form of slavery, meted out man against man in the history of mankind. Um, Insanely brutal. Went on for hundreds of years. Just untold horror. And then we reward the liberation of of Black people with a profoundly racist and still brutal society. Um, Then, likewise, the other holocaust of uh, Native Americans throughout the continent. Um, Just, again, millions upon millions dead. um, Absolute destruction of certain cultures. There's heartbreaking stuff about how many languages we've lost. Like, lost. They're just gone. Because first speakers all died out. Um, Linguists weren't able to or just didn't want to catalog it. the languages. Um, They weren't allowed to pass on the language. Um, And making an argument... That is strongly pro Hamas, specifically, would be kind of the equivalent of saying that this would mean that it would be fine for um, a black person or a native person or just sort of walk into a Whole Foods and open fire. And, and,
0: and, and to be clear, people have said this yeah. online. People have literally said that.
1: And I mention this because it's pretty abundantly clear two things. One, that this isn't going to actually disrupt the structures that have done this. No amount like the police for all the violence and like genocidal harm they carry out against people of color across America. um, And obviously in other Western countries too, just thinking specifically about America, they're not gonna go, oh, we saw one mass shooting, so I guess we'll stop. That's not how they function. If anything, these kinds of, it's a common lesson that we get from the histories of leftist politics, which is like, In for a penny, in for a pound. You don't start an armed conflict with a state apparatus unless you're in for a revolutionary war. Because otherwise, they can wait out your pot shots. It doesn't matter how much ammo you have. It doesn't matter how strong your compound is. They will fucking flatten you unless you are actually able to do this. This is why, like, China, Russia... Um, Vietnam, these places were able to, uh, Burkina Faso, were able to overthrow uh, imperial control over over their nations. But it does kind of take that level of, of force. The other thing is you are kind of a fool if you don't get where that rage comes from. Like the minute that you see it as like, this is responding to material conditions that have built up over generations, and this is a response of the unbridled rage that will, burn and, that will burn you up when you are at the other end of this. Like, there's kind of only two ways out. There's despair and rage. Now, granted, this isn't the only face that rage can take. Like, Great Revolution is also a cry of rage. Martin Luther King was fucking enraged. Like, you can read his writing. The dude was not devoid of... Of anger. He just did a different thing. And before anyone says that this is valorizing, like, oh, you have to be you know, some like only peaceful protest bullshit, Martin Luther King was able to get ground with peaceful protests because there were non peaceful protests. Because it was, I want to talk to you so that no one else has to die. Likewise, Gandhi was able to make ground with the peaceful protests in India because there were a hell of a lot of very not peaceful Marxist and anarchistic um, re- uh, revolutionary action within India, which frankly, given the state of the modern Indian nation, would I it's hard not to feel that it would have been better if it was a Marxist state. Yeah. Crazy that a Marxist would say that. Uh, I know. <laughs> um, but we also see another thing of like, A playful, kind, uh, well, so we'll see the shadow of misandry on the internet, and I'm doing fuzzy, like, you know, horror, like, campfire horror finger motions there. Because obviously, not really a structural thing, not really a major thing to worry about. But we see how this comes to bear specifically against people who are like, AMAB non-binary people, Um, trans women who don't try to pass all that much because that's not the kind of trans woman they are, Um, trans men, uh, like a lot of other vectors where this kind of generalized, well, I'm mad about how patriarchy has mutilated the world and specifically striven to disempower and commit violence against women. Absolutely fair. Absolutely 100% correct. So therefore, I'm going to take out this anger willy-nilly on anyone that reminds me of that structure. This is where it falls apart, because that isn't damaging patriarchal forms in any way. This is, in fact, this is, to, to recode it into that language, the thing Eden was saying, this is itself patriarchal violence, because that which happens in a pure reactionary position against something is still owned by what it's reacting against. The whole point of revolutionary violence, and this includes metaphor, uh, metaphysical violence, not just physical stuff, is an overthrowing of a system, that you're trying to damage a system of being and a system of ordering the world, not just people in the world. Just damaging people in the world because you're mad about the system is itself the violence of that system.
0: A hundred percent. The people who
1: died in the Hamas attack died because of colonialism, not even opposing the colonialism. This is, we can get into the far messier thing of how Israel and Netanyahu in specific have over the past several decades worked specifically to empower Hamas over the PLO because the PLO is considered a far greater international threat because of the way that they were able to gainfully build. Uh, international alliances as uh, as a statehood apparatus and this was far more threatening than people who can shoot you because if they shoot us we can now tell the world we're allowed to shoot back but if they're doing diplomacy worldwide we can't shoot them everyone will get mad at us
0: and that's exactly what i wanted to say like if you think that the israeli state does not understand all of this if you think that the Israeli state is not explicitly doing what I'm saying that it's doing, which is to be Delizian about it because I'm about to cite him, mm-hmm. um, s- smoothing out the saturated space that is going to a space which is folded, which is saturated. Is that how you say that word? Striated, Sat- I
1: think.
0: Striated, yeah, sorry. Love it, it, uh, yeah, English really- from books. <laughs> um, if you think that That's not what they're doing, that they want to pave it over. By the way, Echoes of Modern, of course, the best book I think we've covered in the last uh, year or so. Um, That's what they're doing, okay? And by the way, they're doing it so much that the Israeli army reads, thinks, and writes about the Leuz and They
1: literally teach anti-Oedipus in uh, IDF, training facilities for officers like yep. the notion of deterritorialization and re-territorialization is literally taught by them nomadism war machines this is us invoking this kind of language it's not flippant it's not accidental this is literally in their minds what they are doing and yep. so that requires so, the delusian recapture
0: so of like, in in 2006 um Eyal Weizman pu- published an article um in Mute magazine also another good magazine also has a good publishing arm the Art of War, the lesgate the the ball um and the Israeli defense force um and so he especially talks about um oh, what was it called in in um in English operational theory Res- research institute which is kind of like the institute inside the IDF that, um, you know, researches abstract uh, uh, operational theories, which is kind of like strategy, meta strategy, and meta tactics. And um, Navet, which is uh, the guy who runs the institute, um, says this We are like the Jesuit order. We attempt to teach and train soldiers to think. We read Christopher Alexander. We read John Forrester and other architects. We are reading Gregory B- uh, Bateson. We are reading Clifford Greets. Not myself, but our soldiers, our generals, are reflecting on these kinds of materials. We have established a school and developed a curriculum that trains, quote-unquote, operational architects. Um, he also, there's a bunch of diagrams that he shows, Um with like logical relationships between certain military operations and the labels are, I'm not joking, I'm I'm quoting, difference and repetition, formless rival entities, fractal maneuver, velocity versus rhythms, the Wahhabi war machine, postmodern anarchists and nomadic terrorists. And specifically, the concept that they're most interested in and this is why, this informs a lot of their current actions in Gaza is you take a complex, textured, weird, unintelligible space like Gaza, which has alleyways and buildings and uh, uh, cul-de-sacs and dead ends and roads that are not mapped and, uh, and people living in all sorts of ways. And you flatten it, just like in modern, right? You pave it over with plastic. In this case, you pave it over with bombs. You make it flat. And then when it's flat, when it's smooth in the terminology of a thousand plateaus, then the ground invasion begins. Because now the the state war machine can operate in that field because they know everything. Everything is clear. Who is a danger? Who is not a danger? Who should be killed? Who should not be killed? Who should be bombed? Who should not be bombed? Because the initial step is to make everything intelligible. To make it on the same playing field. And when and this is to wrap up and then we'll do music and talk about the book. When you flatten the conflict into every Israeli is bad, every Israeli is a settler, every Israeli deserves to die, you serve the state of Israel because then it says you are correct. In your perspective, we all need to die and therefore anything we do to you is justified. Anything. Because you think Every single one of us deserves to die. But when you say the Israeli state needs to be destroyed, but the day after it, the people of Israel, the citizens, which are already there, and were brought there by the British and the French, they're already there, they were born there, they they died there, generations, they were educated there, we will need to figure out what to do with them. We will need to figure out how they too can prosper and Achieve, uh, 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 you know, self-identification and self-fulfillment. That's when things get complicated. That's when you start to be a threat. That's when you're offering real solutions. And by the way, just like a side note here, I'm going to take like a pot shot. The two-state solution is a lie. It is a complete and utter fucking lie, because it does not create a viable Palestinian state. It creates a state with. No geographical autonomy, no geographical continuity, no economic access to the resources that they require, and it does nothing in the form of restitution and reparations, which are 100% necessary. Therefore, the only solution is a one-state solution. A democratic, non-ethnically defined, it cannot be a Palestinian state, because that is the same as an ethno-nationalistic Jewish state. It is a democratic state which allows both people, and by the way, it's not one people because Jews are made up of many different peoples and so are Palestinians. There's Jordanian Palestinians and Syrian Palestinians and Egyptian Palestinians, and they all have their own traditions and languages and cuisine and and culture. All of these groups have to live together. And then, by the way, Marxists should revolutionize that state and make it socialist, but we need to get there, just like we need capitalism to take us away from the Ancien Regime. We need the state to take us from Israel. That is the only solution. And in that solution, Jews stay in Israel because it doesn't matter if it's correct or not. It doesn't matter if it's justified or not. It doesn't matter if it's historically right. It matters that they are there and they have nowhere else to go because of material conditions because they don't have the 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 ability or the privilege to go elsewhere and therefore
1: idealism of the highest order to invoke that people who have only ever known one land should be forced to leave it to fulfill basically a second dreamed of ethno state this is one of the most asinine forms of liberalism masquerading as revolutionary politics. Like when you see people, because it's we're literally talking about a land back movement, but we run into the same fucking idiotic misunderstandings of the land back movement, where it's like a land back movement within America doesn't mean we all go back to Europe. That would divest the entire nation of profound levels of infrastructure and a labor pool. Why would you do that? That's not the aim. The aim is a level of sovereignty and accountability to historical process, and a level of again Marxist communal ownership of the fruits of that nation. I, I just it it drives me up the fucking wall when I see this kind of stuff and people falling for the most foolish and like easily manipulab- manipulable. I'm not sure if that's a word, but you know what I'm to say, <laughs> forms of these arguments. Yeah, it's likewise. We only saw a two-state solution emerge during, I believe, the first Intifada, as functionally a way for right-wing Zionist movement to contain Palestine in a way. But basically, it's it's just apartheid. It's
0: apartheid. It's apartheid.
1: And what's funny is you get to preserve an apartheid state where you go, just like apartheid, actually, this is one of the great villainies of it, where they are always a national threat. You've ontologically made a national threat for yourself, which on paper seems bad until you go... What do you do with a national threat? You wait till it gets mad at you and then you bomb it and take a little bit more. Then you wait till it gets mad and attacks you, then you bomb it and you take a little bit more. And that's yep. been the history of Israel since the first intifada.
0: Yep, 100%. Okay, <sighs> let's do music. By the way, I one last thing, sorry. It's not on the topic. It's like meta on the topic. If you are listening to this and you want, to disagree with me, please do so. This is not taboo. It cannot be taboo, which is a lot of the rhetoric that I've heard from both sides. Like, if you think what I'm thinking, you're an enemy and you're a settler and you're a colonialist fuck and you deserve to die. And on the other side, like if you don't recognize that Israelis deserve to live, then there's nothing, to, I can't talk with you and you're worthless. And if you're a leftist and you're betraying me and leaving me to to dry. No, this again, in the, in the spirit of bewilderment, Everything I said here, I believe 100%. But I also think that I'm probably wrong on a bunch of this. So if you disagree and you're, I don't know, debating whether you should message me or email me or whatever, don't talk to me about these things. It's important. This discussion is ongoing. No side has ended it. Nor will it end. Um, shout out to my Trotskyist brothers. No, I don't have any Trotskyist brothers. Um. Okay. Music. So I think the there's actually a bunch of choices here, but for me, the only choice is to play something from um, Woe's uh, Legacies of Frailty. Um, if you are somehow unaware of Woe, um, Woe is a Brooklyn-based black metal band. Um, sorry, Queens, my bad. Queens-based um, black metal band that has included... A bunch of people over its um history including a personal friend of mine and also drummer for Kralis Lev Weinstein one of the Love best you, Lev. yeah one of the best metal drummers in operation today uh, but this album goes back to the roots of Chris Chris Grigg who started this project um he does vocals guitars bass drums and synth on this album Lev actually uh guest drums on a few tracks um But whether it's in, and actually I'm going to play one of the tracks that Lev is on, um, whether it's as a solo project or as a band who have made some of the best American black metal out there, they are also explicitly um, leftist and uh, explore those themes um, in their music and legacies of frailty, is especially about everything that we described here today, modern conflict, this desire to make things simple so that they can then be destroyed or harvested or processed in in all sorts of ways i think the song uh, speaks for itself we're going to play distant epitaphs from woes legacies of frailty enjoy
2: You're the for to to it.
0: okay, we have a doozy for you. <laughs> so, I, first of all, credit, credit where it's due. The person who found this book is my dear wife, um, Ronnie, who I love very much, partly because of her ability to find good books. We went to the Harvard bookstore in Boston. I don't know if you know this, but there are two Harvard stores in Boston. One is the good one, one is the bad one. <laughs> the bad one is the one who is run by harvard which has like merch and you know 50 dollar cups with the harvard logo on them um and so on but the other one is the independent um i think a family-owned um bookstore that's been around since 1932 they're like five minutes walk from each other like even less like two minutes walk from each other i'm trying to
1: decide what this reminds me of like is does this remind me of like like uh like Umberto Eco, there's a little bit of that. There's a little yeah. bit of Borja, I'm just like, there's something so literary, like it's almost almost Kafka. This is to that Eastern European feel of like two identical shops, but one is good and one is evil.
0: Yeah, hundred percent. Um the, the of...
1: cloven vacuum, but it's a bookstore.
0: Yeah. Um <clears throat> this is like one of my favorite bookstores on the planet, and I've been to many. Um they'll like the sheer availability of stuff that they have there and the weirdness of the stuff that they have there they like stock both big you know like lee bardugo you'll find like all of the, the her books there, like all of the fantasy blockbusters and and so on but they also get really niche stuff i don't know who does the shopping for them but they're very good at what they do and they also stock a lot of locals which is very interesting and this book kind of um reached out to ronnie i don't know why and she gave it to me and As soon as I held it, I knew that I was holding something special. This is The Book of Webs by Jesse Cohn. And I can very easily tell you that no book has frustrated me and beguiled me and shocked me as much as this book has ever since I read House of Leaves, Dead Astronauts, um, The Vore, like... This is the caliber of weird that we're talking about here.
1: D'Vore is the big one that yeah. keeps roaring in my head.
0: Yeah. So a few words about uh, Cohen himself because the biography is, has an interesting connection to me actually. Um, Jesse Cohen. let me, I forgot to open um, his actual biography. I only have the book one. What's happening? Where am I? um this is what this is what the book of webs you'll ask these questions too when you start reading it um he did his mfa at brown (laughs) so he lived in providence uh which is where i'm living now and as soon as i found out about that it freaked me out so much (laughs) because uh i don't know this book i really connected with it and then to find out that like he's He was here when he wrote the book. Now he's at the University of Utah um, pursuing his PhD. He's written like short stories and a bunch of other stuff. He he also does music and he calls himself, I don't remember well, I think it's in the back of the book or something or in the front of the book, a dream journalist. Makes a lot of sense once you start to read um, the book of webs. So once I understood his form here, like a lot of things started clicking to me about the book. I, I still... I don't know, Jesse, if you hear this, tell me if it's if I'm right. The evil empire, like the bad guys in this book, as much as this book has bad guys. Um what are they called? The called where is it? Burlingtonian? The Burlingtonian Empire. Oh yeah, empire. the
1: Burlingtonian Empire.
0: So Burlington is like a series of chains of like um what are they what are they uh what do they sell factory no it's a department store oh it's a department store that's specifically local to providence okay um and i really have to wonder if the reason he chose that name oh it's all over Rhode Island. no
1: they they used to be they used to be burlington coat factory but they changed their name to burlington apparently
0: cool so they're all over like massachusetts and, and rhode island and i can't help but wonder if if that's what what Jesse is alluding to in the book. So let us now make the ridiculous attempt at explaining what the Book of Webs is about. So the Book of Webs straddles the line between stream of consciousness, dream journal, and prose poetry, poetry, theory fiction, and a bunch of other stuff as well. At its core, there is... A character, which I think, and I swear to God, this is not me doing a Severian joke like everyone is Severian, (laughs) Um, but the narrator is probably all of the characters described in the book. It's all it always takes the form of a dialogue, which is very interesting. It calls to mind, like you know, the tradition of dialogues from Socrates, Plato, all the way to today. Um, But it follows dream logic. So, which characters are speaking? Which character is the narrator? Um, what's the sequence of events? What is true about what the characters are telling each other is always being questioned and is always malleable, right? So, one character will say things like, something like, and then we were walking along the river and you were beside me. And the other character will say, no, don't you remember? I fell into the water, and the first character will say, "Oh, that's right. You weren't besides me. You had fallen into the water, right?" Like there's no agreement between the characters on what actually occurred, and because one of the characters is the narrator, there's no agreement between you and the narrator on what happened.
1: It's it it reads a lot like like if uh, if Madaran was a literary fiction novel. Um, yeah. just this Bing Bong or if uh, if uh, the Vore was just one guy and it's all of the Vore and all that stuff, that's just one guy. He's just... He's, he's Book of Webs now. He's Book yeah. of Webs Johnson. He's,
0: so he's Book of Webs and the Book of Webs is also like the hope of like anti-fascist resistance. Like something in the Book of Webs there's knowledge in it that... Will destroy the Burlingtonian Empire. It's uh, before like,
1: it's such a really great like literalization of like a holocry- a, a holocratic and like rhizomatic, uh, yeah, horizontalist structure. I'm like,
0: oh, oh, uh, so, yeah. So uh! here's the thing. Before I actually follow up on what you just said, because I really agree with that, and and it takes it one step further. I just want to read like a passage from the book so that people understand what we're talking about instead of us trying to describe it. So. It it goes like this. Um, And these instructions, thus, hadn't been disguised as a book. A book, I said, I think that you'd called it the book of webs, right? A book, I reminded her, that had been broken into over a hundred pieces. I thought, that's what you were feeding to sludge. No, 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 she laughed. But I see why you got confused. It was the moon that had broken into over a hundred pieces. It wasn't instructions disguised as a book, but moonlight that was scattered all over my apartment. Your cabin, I said. My cabin, rather, she said. If I'd misunderstood her, she explained, it was probably only because she must have enunciated this fact while my head was still underwater. (laughs) It's so bewildering.
1: It's gently wackadoo at all times.
0: And it's not just lol random, right? It's not like. And then there was a big purple giraffe who ate my book. Like, it does follow some logic, but that logic is always up to negotiation. Because just not following logic is not interesting, right? It's like just random shit. What? <clears throat> and that's not what dreams do, right? Dreams don't are not random. They follow their own logic, which lives or exists in parallel to the waking logic. Now, the other thing that this book does, where well, you might have caught on that from this passage, of course, because this is a deaf sentence, it contains itself. Um, specifically, the Book of Webs is a manuscript in the Book of Webs that one of the characters, um, <laughs> they submit it as their MFA application. Okay, now... Jesse was writing this as his MFA project. Like this book was written as an MFA application. Um, and the character in the book submits this in order to, note, rat out the Burlingtonian representatives in the committee that reads the application. What does this mean? One, what Cohn is doing here really smartly is attacking the academy. And this book is an Anti academic book. Because what he's saying is the university, the program that I was in is Burlingtonian. And I'll get to what that means in a second. No, actually, I'll do it now. Remember a few episodes? Was it last episode when we talked about the logic of the supermarket?
1: I don't remember. Um, It was recent ish. Ish. It was recent, (laughs) yeah.
0: So that's exactly what he's doing here. He's saying it's Burlingtonian in the sense that Burlington is a department store. And it operates the logic of the department store, which is the logic of the supermarket. It categorizes, it explains, it understands, it makes intelligible things which are bewildering. And that's why we started with that in our intro. They're weird. They're inexplicable. But he's saying that about the MFA program that he himself wrote this book and submitted to.
1: So famously for people not uh, Gareth and I have talked about this because Gareth and I both walked the ugly road of of the MFA, um, and Gareth, uh, not Gareth, Eden spared himself, but easily could have <laughs> uh, went another equally ugly road—the road of philosophy uh, academia. Yeah. <laughs> um, but uh, genre stuff generally gets like heavily within that world like you're supposed to just write literary stuff you're supposed to turn your nose up at like pulp stuff which is weird considering like you're then you're then handed stuff uh to look at like like dickens who who literally was writing for newspapers like he, he was writing like entertainments it just has literary value um you're given these like confounding uh, relationships to texts that if you're in the literary studies department, like one of the things that you look at is how the avant-garde and how the, uh, approachable, uh, intermingle, how the, how genres themselves are post hoc classification terms and not really pre hoc generative terms. It's actually only relatively recent that you see writers, um, really die like over the past like hundred ish years really dive into defining themselves by their genre relation rather than like i'm a writer and if i come up with a cool horror story that's what i write and if i come up with a cool literary story about like a coming of age thing that's what i write um mfas generally build themselves out of denying everything the literary studies people try to say by going like no we're going to write realist um grounded fiction and other other than that we don't want it even though we're louding all these works of like how can you loud finnegan's wake and not like you know really out there challenging avant-garde works it's just this really yeah So so i have a lot of feelings about that world so i was right at home with this book (laughs)
0: <laughs> 10%. And I think the, 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 the cool thing is like cool on, on the real plane, right? Not like literary plane is that he handed in a book. Well, within the book, it says this book is a Trojan horse. I am handing it to you specifically so that it fucks you up and makes you reconsider why you're on an MFA committee. That is such a baller fucking move. <laughs> like handing that in is your... MFA submission. And by the way, this is not me reading into it. Like the book says that the length of the book of webs in the book, like that is the destructive artifact is 421 pages long. Guess what is the length of the actual book of webs that I am holding in my hand? 421 pages. And the parallels don't stop there. So it's such a cool thing to do. Like you only submit once like a book to an MFA program. And he was like, I'm going to make it count. Like the very act of submission is going to say something, which is so, that's our shit, right? That's like taking something that's obvious, like House of Leaves does, right? like Dead Asomans does, like word structure, paragraph structure, the very existence of the book, the very thing that it tries to describe, and saying, I'm going to politicize this. I'm going to do semantics with it, semiotic sorry. I'm going to give it meaning beyond just the quote-unquote obvious standard meaning that it has. It's such a clever thing to do. And then, as we always do in Deaf Sentence, we say, also, it's very well-written, right? Like, (laughs) strip it of all its pretense and games with meta and statements and politics. It is so well-written. I you know which book it reminded me of? I'm actually, I want to see what you what you think. Like, which other book that we covered did this book most remind me of?
1: Did it remind you of?
0: Yeah. Which book that Death Sentence has covered, that you and I have covered, did Book of Webs remind me of the most?
1: Hmm. Well, I said moderan and you didn't pop quite there. So I'm no. guessing not moderan Um... Ooh, let me let me look at our our recent Troika. Troika. Oh fuck, I see it. Yeah.
0: Because both this book and Troika. And if you haven't read Troika, what are you doing with yourself? Like you're such a mess. Just go read Troika, okay? What a
1: fucked up weird book. What a I, weird book.
0: I went back to it and I just read the sea life chapters. They're so <laughs> They're so good. And Book of Webs has this cornucopia, right? This overflowing feeling. It's so brimming with ideas and concepts. There's a person in this book, I mean, maybe, because all the characters are like completely malleable, who goes around assassinating politicians because she resents the sentence, you miss 100% of the shots you don't take. So she goes out and takes all the shots to prove so that she can miss all of them. But then the 100th shot hits so that the sentence is correct. Like, what? Who comes up with that? Like, who takes the oft made fun of of sentence of Wayne Gretzky's, you miss 100% of the shots you don't take, and turns it into like a centerpiece of their literary work and then uses it to say things about political violence and what it achieves and what it doesn't achieve like i don't use this word lightly it's genius genius in the way that troika is genius that modern i I 100 percent agree with the comparison is genius because it's overflowing right like
1: it felt to me so much like um so we have Modern also reminded me of, of of this novel as well, but this is not just—it feels like a literary fiction form of Modern, but also the ways in which it wraps itself up in specifically the Illuminatus trilogy just absolutely mm. left me agog with with great joy. Um, I've talked with Gareth about this, but one of a bit of lore is that that's still probably my favorite novel. Like, I don't think it's the greatest novel of all time. The greatest I'd still probably give to someone like, like Joyce or something like that. Like there, there's, there's a reason why certain novels are allowed it the way they are. And it's not to say that I don't love them, but like even, even more than like a house of leaves or something like that. The Illuminatus trilogy was the book that was the first time I looked at something and went, holy fuck, he's doing all the brainy shit and all the goofy shit and all the badass shit and, like, all the avant-garde shit, like, all of it's all in one fucking book. Like, he's not, he's no longer doing the, like, well, now I have to have my smart book and now I have to. And this had that same level of, like, profound level of playfulness where he's, like, he's flipping himself off at certain points because he's, like... That lovely thing that and as a fan of progressive rock, uh, that the sense of humor that comes up musically in something where, you know, you have like Frank Zappa or Gentle Giant kind of poking fun at like how self and Genesis and uh, with The Lamb Lies Down on Broadway did it and uh, Jethro Tull with Thick as a Brick did it like poking fun at how self serious and ridiculous some of this stuff can be like how contrived it can be and like winking at you going like i'm fucking around i'm telling i'm telling telling a fucking joke and what's the funniest way to tell a joke take a bad pun like uh a lady who kills people because she's mad at the wayne Gretzky quote and write it like a motherfucker don't write it (laughs) like you're telling a joke write it like you think this is serious and then write at the end go that's a pun yeah. like this, this whole side plot was a pun like, and you're like fuck you man <laughs>
0: <laughs> so I think the last thing I want to say about the book of webs is, is to tie it back into what, what we talked about in the introduction which is like it's, it's like the astronauts and it's like house of leaves actually it's more like house of leaves if you approach this text with the idea of making it make sense you've missed the point Right? And you'll have a bad time. Like, I can't tell you how much I despise the people who try to solve House of Leaves. Right? Like, yeah, <laughs> the Redditors who like, oh, if you cross-reference this page with that page, uh, Lewandowski, he had a poem in there which explains what the journals are about. It's all true. He did it. Daniel Lewandowski did it. But not so that you solve it. What is that his name? Lewandowski? What is his name? Um,
1: no, like that. it's no. no. The, I, uh, it, is that his name?
0: Yeah, it is. <laughs> it is. It is. It is. I wasn't just, yeah, it's just like. Wait. I don't know why I doubt myself. <laughs> um, th- that's not why he did it. House of Leaves is filled with all these tidbits and all these connections so that you feel their presence, right? So that you feel what it's like to be in the labyrinth. But it's, it's not a House of Leaves episode. We already did that. Book of Webs is filled with this stuff. Not so that you um, figure it out. Like, I just got this cursed image in my head of someone trying to chart all of the characters out on this, some sort of flowchart tool and making it make Corny. sense.
2: But yeah,
0: Exactly. Like, that's not the point. The point is that the book is trying to make you feel lost. It's trying to make you feel like you're in a dream. It's trying to convey what it feels like to be in a dream. And as someone with very vivid dreams, I really enjoyed it. I feel like whenever any book describes dreams, it does a really poor job of it, which is understandable because a waking mind is trying to describe a dreaming mind, which is completely outside of the limits of its possibility. This is the closest I've ever had a book make me feel like I was dreaming. You know what's the second closest? Roger Zelazny in amber so in amber there's the there's the hell rides right when you try to go to a different shadow if you haven't read amber this will make no sense to you but you try to go to a different shadow and you don't have a destination in mind so you're trying to like brute force the travel and there's these passages i think they're only in the first books where colwyn is doing one of these rides and there's like snippets of reality around him and, and Zalesny changed the format it's like a lot of ellipses a lot of three dots a lot of missing sentences a lot of semicolons it's like almost of a stream of consciousness and that reminded me rather the book of webs reminded me of this one and and i can't deny like the impact of the biography here right like reading this and then walking the streets of providence and walking next to brown going like This guy, like Jesse Cohen, he was walking around here when he was writing this. Like, he was having these dreams in one of these houses, probably. It's such a wild experience, and it made me appreciate this book even more. Now, you can't do that unless you want to come and chill with me in Providence while you read this book, which you're welcome to do. I'm I'm a nice guy. Um, There's still something here that you can relate to because you've dreamt, right? You felt that, like, jarring feeling of, wait, what? What? what's going on but then immediately that sensation of just go with it right it's fine it makes sense this is the logic this is I what mean, this book will do to you.
1: It, it's it's a thing that so i've been reading as, as my own stuff um i've been going back and forth a lot between uh virginia wolf and italo calvino two obvious greats like i'm not gonna shock anyone but say oh did you know they're good um also Uh, caveat emptor with Virginia Wolf. Every book she mentions Jewish people exactly once and you're never going to like it. You're never going to feel good when she does that. You got to muscle through that or quit. That's another viable one. But, you know, just needed to say that in case anyone's like thinking it in their head because they knew. Yeah, she (laughs) she's super anti-Semite and very turbo dead. Can't stress how dead she is. Um, I can't stress enough, rather. Um, but there's both of them have this very swimming poetic language. Like I, I use that metaphor a lot of like imagining the text and my own headspace as like, like a C because I'll tend to read with a record on. And so my attention is kind of being tugged towards the prose, but also towards like the textuality, like, you know, what are they saying? Not just what is being written. And then, you know, there's, there's the subtextuality of like, all the questions that come with literacy. Why is it structured this way? Why did they pick these words and not these ones? Why? But then the music's going on and on paper, the way I'll explain it to people who don't do this process and so don't naturally understand why I do it, is on good days, all of these elements match up and picking the right record with the right book makes both of them richer. And that's true, but that's not really the reason the reason is, and it gets back to that thing of like a humility and a desire for wonderment. We were actually talking about this and regarding um, heavy metal and fantasy as well. Mm-hmm. Of, yeah. I can do all the brainy mapping of texts and trans critiques of one text to another and all that. This is literally what I got my degree in. That's what I studied in uh, graduate school. It's fun. I'm not. I'm not knocking that. And I studied it because again, It's fun, like beyond it being enlightening, beyond it being really fulfilling, which are both true. I like doing it. It makes me feel really fucking good when I'm doing that. But there's this raw, primitive level of me in the text and me in the text, not really caring about what it means, but how does it feel? Mm -hmm. And this is the secret in if you've ever liked writing that me or Eden have done. This is the secret of how you make that. It's not that you aren't additionally in other ways mindful of like, oh, let's, you know, edit clauses here. Let's stitch things together that way. But you'd probably be surprised what editing looks like for writers like us who lean a lot more poetic in certain ways than it does for other people who learn, lean far more towards like facticity and stuff. Is that a lot of it isn't, how do I, oh, can I cross out that article or that preposition because it's uh you know we can save a little bit of ink or whatever but more like how does this feel if i if i shut my brain off and i'm not letting in meaning how does this assemble in me and this book was such a fucking feast of that like I stress that because I think for some people who aren't turned on by the intensely cerebral end of a lot of these avant-garde works, um, they can be like, oh, that sounds kind of tedious. And like, why the, why the fuck would I put myself through work? Why would I sign up for a book that's a job? And it's like, because it's not a job. It's it's a fucking thrill ride. Like, this is the one area where Eden and I don't so much disagree about, like... Joyce or Moby Dick as much as I think our disagreement comes from how you're handed that book if you're handed Moby Dick by someone going this dead white dude wrote the greatest book of all time and here it is and if you disagree you don't understand or like literature holy fuck how can you not hate the book In that case, how can you not walk away going, suck my dick? Like you need, it's like a test of humanity. You need to have the punk response of like, don't tell me how to feel. Don't tell me this is the most beautiful thing as though there's no other beauty in the world. Fuck off. Like that's gotta be what you do. But if you just walk into it going, I've heard a lot of things. I want my relationship with Moby Dick. And you read it, you go, fuck, this book is crazy. Like this book's bananas. Um, Same with James Joyce. Like you read Finnegan's Wake. Put aside all the frou-frou bullshit, but as much as I love that frou-frou bullshit, just pick up that book and read it with a record on. You gotta have a record on when you're reading your Joyce, And you'll go, holy shit, this dude's a fucking mastermind. I don't know what a single fucking sentence here means. And you can do the thing where you buy a bunch of texts where people have very brilliantly and very studiously broken down the whole text to show you it's bewildering, but it's not without meaning. Because that's the other thing. It's like, bewildering things aren't devoid of meaning. It's a tantalizing mystery of meaning. Like, the heart of literature is stuff like, what is love, war, death, lust? Can I feel lust and love at the same time? Do they corrupt each other? And if they do corrupt each other, do they always corrupt each other? Or is it sometimes? When do they not do it? Can it? Can lust make love richer, not wor- weaker? Like and you spend your whole life ruminating on these questions yeah. every everyone does not even artists like that's just an everyone thing and like great art is more about we get handed this in grad school great art is about wrestling with these questions not answering them because they don't have answers that's not how any of this shit works and we see that in communism too dialectics tells us you don't answer geopolitics you respond to it you're enmeshed in it you tang- entangle yourself with it but there's no unentanglement or rather there's one unentanglement only one and that's being dead um that's it
0: yeah I God, think, what block yeah <laughs> it's 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 really an eye-opener I think it's one of those rare experiences again like the other books that I've cited on here that if you've listened to those episodes because we've covered all of them you know what they mean to both of us. And one of the blurbs on this book actually says that as well. Like this is a book that people will carry with them um, and, and and will cite in the future. I I honestly believe that. Um, the the Tor.com review by Tobias Carroll actually says, it isn't always the easiest novel to reckon with, but it's also a hard book to shake, which I think is a really good way to uh, put it. I've not stopped thinking about this book ever since I read it. It's it's something else. It really is unique. And it's so it's so cool to me that I just stumbled upon it. I just Ronnie picked it up from a shelf. And it was in that shop just because it was, you know, written in the area and, and published by Massachusetts Press. Um and was stocked in the shop just because it's a local novel. Um it's really interesting to me that. To an equal degree, I could have never read this book, right? And never have been influenced it, by it, sorry, to such an extent, which I think is really beautiful about the way that we discover books and how random it, it can be um, and what they can give us.
1: I just, I love, I just, this, he refers, he refers to the book as a 420 page long typo. And that's just. <laughs> yeah. You know, you're about to read some good shit when there's something both eat that is the same amount of pretentious and, uh, like, uh, self-deprecating, self-deprecating, like all in, I'm like, oh, I'm going to love this.
0: Yeah. Okay. Um, I want to play some death metal. How, how do you feel about that? Do you oh, like you, death oh, metal? Oh, death
1: metal. I've not, I've not heard of it. What's, <laughs> this, what's this death metal you're death talking metal, you, about?
0: Yeah. It's this, uh, <laughs> cool, cool style of music. Um, <laughs> One One might even
1: say, and I've only heard this, that it's the coolest and the
0: best. I don't know who would say that, but whoever they are, they are handsome and sexy and correct. Mm. Um, So there's this band um, from Switzerland called Stortrain. S-T-O-R-T-R-E-G-N. And these guys they
1: spell themselves that way to make it hard for you to remember how to spell their name, which is a really powerful kind of move.
0: it's like anti s e o right yeah. um and i I don't want to oversell these guys, but I'm going to anyway, they're one of the best bands on the planet right now, I feel um impermanence, which was released in two thousand twenty one is a fucking masterpiece of an album, and they recently released finitude, like literally. Three days ago. And Finitude is also very, 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 very good. So this is progressive death metal with some black metal influences, but it doesn't sound like you think it's going to sound. They have these really cool folk uh, passages that are not just like pause, here's some folk stuff. It's like built into the death metal influences. Um, Jimmy the blogs the heavy heavy blogs founder um kind of marked them in the lineage of flamenco influenced death metal bands like gorod and, and and others of that sort and i really agree with it and infinitude they actually bring that more to the front so there's a lot of really groovy and interesting and upbeat sections it's just very good it's just a very good album
1: they're signed to uh, artisan era which for people yeah. in the know is so like this is not me shitting on slam. If you're in death metal, you have to have an opinion on slam. This is to, and people who know what I'm talking about, know what I'm talking about. But <laughs> there are some labels, uh, their names are blanking to me right now. But if you say them, like if you're a slam fan, you start, your mouth starts watering. If you're not a slam fan, you immediately check out. Cause it's like, they're what's, what is that label? It, it like,
0: uh, uh like toxins yeah. on it. No, no, no. Uh, fuck, what are they called? Something records, Fearless, unique Uniquely. Uniquely though. Thank you, thank
1: you. And it's like the artisan era is the current big tech death label. Yeah. and for uh, there's going to be an amount of you that are like, uh, tech death, because what that meant for years and years was endless sweet picking. Um, yeah. and hot take, sh- stop fucking sweet picking. Don't sweep pick until you listen to at least 250 jazz fusion records. Because the way they sweep in a fusion band is does it contribute to the solo versus what we got for fucking bajillion years in metal is how long can I sweep pick before my arm gets tired? And I go, well, I'm fucking tired of hearing it after like two arpeggios. Stop. Um, Artisan era (laughs) stuff is in... The sort of current wing of Tech Death, which is a lot more like Songcraft oriented, it reminds yeah. me a lot more of those two brilliant Necrophagist records, which are obviously Tech Death, but it's that they are death metal songs that are then we want every riff to be like bewildering to hear. Um, I, that usage of bewildering was accidental, but you know, wonderful coincidence. <laughs> um, so it's, it's that same kind of feeling where like store trends stuff is very hectic there's a lot of moving parts in any given song like it's not that there aren't a A, ABAB structures it's that what compromises like oh here's the a section it'll be like 14 riffs um and then by the time it starts repeating you're like wait i've heard this riff before what um yeah good shit god i love death metal
0: 100 i also love death metal i also love artisan era by the way Random shout-out. Desiderium is also signed to the Artisan era. If you have not heard Desiderium, you're fucking up. It's so... I can't even. It's the guitarist from Nulling Roots, which is a really good uh, black metal band. But he does things with death metal that nobody else does. Anyway, listen to Desiderium. But also, listen to Store Drain, which is what we're about to play now. I'm going to play um, Omega Axiom. And I'm going to give you a volume warning because it opens very loudly. So if you're listening to this loudly, maybe turn down the volume a bit. Um, This is Omega Axiom from Stortrain's Finitude. Please enjoy, and we will see you next time. Bye-bye.